Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. If you're listening to this show, you know the story of what happened at Fort Sumter. And if you're a veteran history reader, you're familiar with the genre of oral history, collecting interviews and reporting uh, from the cannon's mouth, as it were. But you've never read an oral history of the Civil War, nor have I until now. We'll talk tonight with Bruce Chadwick, author of The Cannon's Roar, Fort Sumter and the Start of the Civil War, and Oral History. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight, as usual, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, where the show originates, but where no one on campus has any idea that it exists, and thus not speaking for ECU, not speaking for anyone else, just myself, and our guests will do the same tonight, as we always do here. Well, here on campus, it is uh, springtime. I was just walking over to the library uh, to get a book for a future show, and on the way back, I saw students playing volleyball out on the the mall, the grassy area in the center of campus. There were students at a cultural fest eating various foods and listening to music on the grass. And it, and they're wearing much less clothing than over the last uh, six weeks or so. So it, it's, a, it's the beginning of spring here uh, on campus. It's still light out. The, the clocks have changed here at the beginning of our show. It'll be dark before we're done. And it's baseball season. That means ECU is continuing to play its favorite sport. We had a rough weekend, but yesterday beat our in-state rivals at NC State. My condolences to our Wolfpack listeners, and I know some of you are out there. Uh, 
but uh, that that rivalry goes back and forth every year. And ECU is still ranked uh, number 12 nationally. Another sign of spring is that it's time for the ROTC students to do their annual staff ride, and that was something I got to participate in this year, and what a treat it was. Uh, One of the requirements to graduate from the ROTC program here is to go to a battlefield, do a staff ride in which the cadets research the site, and as we cross it, uh, not on horseback, not like the old staff rides, but by vehicle, as we make each stop, uh, uh, two of the cadets present on what happened at that place, and then there's discussion about uh, decision-making and and terrain and all kinds of factors that in many ways have not changed since the Civil War. This year, the, the, uh, the students went to Petersburg, Virginia. They had a tactical exercise Friday and Saturday night uh, in that area. While they were up there, they decided Petersburg would be their stop. And while the Army sometimes supplies a historian to accompany them this year, that didn't happen. And I was talking with one of the students who's in a, a class I'm teaching, and I said, you know, I've actually been to Petersburg a dozen times. I'd be happy to go there with you. Well, that hadn't thought that through fully. It meant I was committing to get up before dawn on Sunday and drive up there and uh, meet them. But it was so very worthwhile. I was really glad I got to do that. The students gave great presentations, um, some outstanding ones, some uh, maybe not not quite the highest, but uh, but overall well done. And what I especially enjoyed was that having been to uh, Petersburg many times, it's usually in the context of a Stephen Ambrose historical tour uh, visit uh, on the bus with the folks from the, the This Hallowed Ground tour, which you can sign up for. We're going in May this year. I'm not sure if there's seats left. There's definitely seats left for the October tour. Uh, so if you want to join me on that, please contact Stephen Ambrose historical tours. Uh, the, the thing is, though, on those tours... We, we stop by, as we're driving through, let's say, uh, Petersburg, we'll stop at Fort Stedman and get out and walk up to the fort, the grassy knoll on which the, the breastworks, earthworks sit. And then that's like a 50-yard hike, and then we'll walk back to the bus. We don't walk all the way down several hundred yards to the monument of the 1st Main Heavy Artillery or the half-mile loop trailed over to Colquitt salient on the other side of the of the the siege lines because time is short and the people on the Stephen Ambrose historical tours bus many of them are around my age uh, some are older some are younger they are not a group of 25 uh, fit young ROTC cadets, male and female, uh, as we had this weekend. So that meant every stop we made, we walked everywhere. And all these places that I've come tantalizingly close to seeing, like Fort Morton, uh, that we've just driven by and looked out the bus window, we walked up and walked around it. Uh, so it was great. I got to see the battlefield much more thoroughly than I'd ever done before. And, uh, hear the enthusiasm of some of the students. Some of them were real Civil War uh, students and knew a lot about it. And even to see the ones who weren't initially maybe so excited starting to catch on and and say, ah, I see how this works. I see how it relates to what I'm doing professionally. It was was a great experience, and I I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, 
look forward to next year. Uh, one of them told me that they'd heard the University of Michigan ROTC does their staff right every year at Normandy, thanks to a giant bequest from an alum. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, if so, I say, go blue. Well done, Michigan. And uh, how do I get that gig? That would really be a, a great staff ride to go on if, if, if somebody would, would fly me out there every year. Uh, not happening, though. Happy to be here at ECU. Happy to be here at Civil War Talk Radio, where next week we will be talking with Faye Yarbrough, author of Choctaw Confederates, the American Civil War in Indian Country. On the 19th of April, this is 2023 we're talking about, Harold Holzer will come back to join us, a longtime friend of the show. He's written uh, lots of books, too many to count, actually, not enough fingers and toes combined on Lincoln and the Civil War. On the 26th of April, Jessica Zapparo and her book, This Grand Experiment, When Women Entered the Federal Workforce in Civil War Era, Washington, D.C., in May, we'll talk with John Avlon about his recent work, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. And on May 10th, Ty Sedgley, uh, former military leader himself, will talk about Robert E. Lee and me, a Southerner's Reckoning, Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. You've probably read the book already or heard him speak. And if not, you'll, you'll, whether you have or not, you won't want to miss that, nor, nor will I. And on the 17th, we'll be on the road, this hallowed ground. More when we get back. We will, uh, in just two weeks from now, reach show number 600, episode 600. Who would have thought from 2004 that this would just keep going? Uh, You can find out, you can listen to all the old shows by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney is the webmaster who posts every recording there. And... While you're there, click on the PayPal donation button. It's springtime weather. That means T-shirt weather is coming back. You can also buy T-shirts there. It doesn't mean you should wear them publicly. If you're like me, your your shape is such that you should do what I'm doing, which is wearing my Civil War Talk Radio T-shirt right now in an office where no one can see me. Uh, but I know it's here. Uh, most of us are really not... We, we don't have the T-shirt bodies anymore. Or maybe you just don't care. Anyway, get a t-shirt or other Civil War Talk Radio swag uh, by clicking on that button at the website or go straight to tpublic.com. And uh, finally, let me encourage you again to donate to the show with the PayPal button. 600 episodes are yours for the listening. Uh, A $30 donation means you're paying five cents a show. It's, it's, It's... why are you doing it? Let me answer that question. What, where does the money go? Let's be transparent. Uh, uh, none of your business would be the short answer, but that doesn't really encourage donations. Uh, the answer is it's a way to show appreciation. It's a way for you to be part of the Civil War Talk Radio community. Um, it, it helps me purchase books if I can't get them through the library at the university or review copies from publishers don't show up. It helps me with subscriptions for relevant publications that aren't covered by the department. And what's left over, I use to maintain the bourbon supply at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex. That's my home, not my office. I do not have that in the office. And when there's a surplus in the fund uh, beyond that, I pass it along to 
to organizations that every one of you listening already supports or ought to support, like the American Battlefield Trust or the, the Wade Dudley Scholarship Fund here at ECU for history students. And that's for history students, not athletes. So NC State folks, don't worry, I'm not helping the baseball team. They're, they're already beating you guys. Uh, so join the community and contribute. Uh, I enjoy learning from the people I talk with every week. I hope you do as well. Uh, and it, what keeps me going is knowing that you do as well. And, and when you send a contribution, uh, you know, $30 is great. If that's not practical, you know, if you're fixed income or have financial challenges, just send an email. Let me know you're, you're enjoying the show, and that, that keeps me going. So looking forward to that. And finally, it's tax season. Don't deduct it. It's not tax deductible. Well, let's talk about our book tonight. Uh, our guest is Bruce Chadwick. He has a brand new book called The Cannon's Roar, Fort Sumter and the Start of the Civil War and Oral History. Uh, Dr. Chadwick, are you there? Good. How are you doing? I am doing good. I'm glad to have you on the show. Um, Thanks for inviting me. I was, I was listening at the, the early part of your description about the weather down there. Well, I'm in New Jersey, and the uh, weather here is this. Last night, we almost got carried away by a tornado. Mm. It just That's missed not... us. We're all wow. ready to go. We're to, going to depart down the stairs into the garage to safety. But the tornado missed us and blew out into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Where all tornadoes belong. Absolutely. Well, I'm I'm glad that didn't didn't get you. We're 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 in hurricane country here, not tornadoes so much. But uh, but glad you glad you didn't encounter that. It's beautiful down here tonight. Uh, Me too. So l- let me start asking, as I often ask guests on the show, what uh, what got you interested in writing about the Civil War? Well, I've written oh, about half a dozen books about the Civil War. And it's always interested me. Um, when I was a little boy, I must have been eight or nine, my father was a World War II veteran, mm-hmm. and he wanted to visit battlefield sites where he had been in Europe, but he couldn't do that because we didn't have the money. So instead, he decided to visit American battlefield sites, and he threw us all in the car and drove off to Gettysburg. And I was just fascinated by, by Gettysburg. And the thing that I'll never forget, and I, I tell my students this today, is there was this mammoth rock somewhere on the battlefield, and it was all covered in graffiti as mm. we were in the bus approaching it. And then on the rock you could see painted plainly the words, none here died in vain. Oh. And I remember that, that tied into Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And mm. that, that phrase on that rock never left me. And I've always been very interested in the Civil War, mainly for that reason. Well, now, you mentioned teaching. Uh, it, tell us about your day job when you're not writing this book. Oh, I'm a, I'm a professor of history at New Jersey. Well, I just retired. I was a professor of history at New Jersey City University for, for 28 years. And prior to that, for 23 years, I was a reporter with the New York Daily News. So, well, this... I, I will tell you, when I got uh, an email from your publicist... Um, and, and that often is how I hear about books for the show, saying this was coming out. Uh, I saw the subtitle, this was an oral history, and I thought, well, you know, I teach public history. I, oral history is when you interview people, and there's no one left to interview from the Civil War. So <laughs> there, there's a gimmick here, what's going on. 
And I started looking at it. My first thought was, okay, this is, this is either somebody who doesn't know what oral history means or is, is you know, a, a journalist or somebody not seriously, not, not taking it seriously. And I, I was just about to hang up the metaphorical phone and, and just, just click back, thanks, but no thanks. And then looked at, at the description of the author. And you, you had history PhD at the, from Rutgers, I think. Uh, right. right. I, and, I'm, I'm kind of weird. I, when I was in my around 50, mm-hmm. uh, I went back to school to get a Ph.D., and I got at Rutgers because I live in New Jersey. Yeah, I, that is interesting. I, I, I was out of school. I did three years of law practice before I went back for my Ph.D., but but you had a whole career. You, you, you were a longtime reporter and, and made this mid-career shift. But that meant you you know what you're doing. You know what sources are. You know what oral history is. Um, so no, then I started. I did not know what I was doing. I made the oral <laughs> a big shift in my career because we all got fired. Ah. Five hundred of us got fired, Ooh. and uh, I then floated into higher education, mm-hmm. and found out that I needed a doctorate to get a job in higher education. Mm-hmm. But the school I went to work for uh, said you can get the doctorate while you're working here, as mm-hmm. long as you get it within five years, and I did that, and that opened the door for me into academics. And in, when I got into academics. I started uh, writing history books. Okay. Well, well. So, so when you started writing this book, you were already trained historian. You knew what was going on. But that's an interesting shift. Um, we're about to take a break, and I, I promised I wasn't going to say anything to myself tonight. And and I hope you'll indulge me for a moment, Bruce. Because um, a couple of weeks ago, I bragged on my older daughter graduating from medical school this year, and. Um, and now this week, she and her boyfriend are buying a house. They're like adults. It's just crazy. Uh, and my younger daughter, uh, who was in, it had the same thing happen to her that happened to you. Uh, a whole department was laid off uh, a, a few months ago. She today just got a fabulous new job offer. Uh, wow. So, so I, I'm so relieved and happy for her. Um, I wasn't going to talk personal, but I. I Listeners, I hope you'll indulge me too. Let's get back. No, well, I'm to... glad you mentioned that because what happened to me um, what, what, be, be, by getting did... fired, it opened the door to become a historian, and that's uh, the best thing that ever happened to me. I, I totally hear that. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back. And okay. We're really going to talk about the book. We'll be back uh, in just a few moments tonight. We're talking with Bruce Chadwick. He is the author of The Cannon's Roar: Fort Sumter and the Start of the Civil War and Oral History. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device. 
including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Bruce Chadwick, author of The Cannon's Roar, Fort Sumter and the Start of the Civil War, an oral history. We got... Briefly cut off right as we were going to break there, uh, as I was telling you the title, so I'm telling you again, The Cannon's Roar. Uh, so, Bruce, we were talking about your, your career, fascinating you know, mid, mid-life switch into uh, academic history and becoming a history professor. Uh, so that really leads to my, my number one question. Why choose – no, let, let, tell, tell the audience what, what the format of this book is. When I was in graduate school about 30 years ago, I read this marvelous book. It was an oral history of the Depression. Mm-hmm. I think Studs Terkel wrote it. The Great good book. And oh, yeah, yes. I love the book I, I, because you got yep. the, the view of how awful the Depression was mm-hmm. from like 100 different people telling their story. And I said to myself, you could do that with history battles or hist- historical figures and using the writings of a hundred people or so, letters, newspaper accounts, diaries, journals, you could stitch together a different story. Because when oral history, as the reader, the person involved in that tale, is telling you directly from his point of view what happened to him and what he saw and what he did. And you don't get that with general history. So I wanted to try that and see how it worked. And, and to tell you the truth, I think it worked out pretty good. Well, it, it's uh, that's an interesting example you give the Studs Terkel uh, books. Uh, the one, you had one on the Depression. There's another one called The Good War that I've used with my students sometimes uh, as well on the World War II years. And as, as you, but the difference there is is that Terkel interviewed those people. They were still alive, and he asked them to tell their stories, and he transcribed them, and then he stitches them all together, and and you get this impressionistic. Uh, uh, a very you know textured version of what had what it was like to be alive in that time. Here, uh, as you say, obviously you can't interview Abraham Lincoln or P.G.T. Beauregard, but you do have writings of what they said. Is is that the same thing? It's as close as you can get. It's not the same thing, but it is as. As close as you can get. If you if you read if you read enough history of whether these people wrote it or somebody else wrote it, you can get a lot of their feelings about events and situations. And if you can read a lot of books and 
speeches and letters, etc., and stitch mm. it together well, you can still turn out a pretty good story. Well, it definitely makes a, a good story. Um, as I said, I was skeptical when 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 your publicist sent this initially. Um, the the description that that the publicist writes, you didn't write this. Uh, it gets a little hyperbolic. Uh, uh, it's a more just. It, it says this is more descriptive than those offered by historians over the year, over the years. And I'm thinking, so like Bruce Catton, James LaPierson, you guys don't know how to describe. Stand back. Um, I, you would never say that about your own work, I'm sure. But no. It, it, it the I guess my thought is that, that Bruce Canton uses lots of quotes. Um, uh, McPherson maybe less so, but but a lot of historians have done this. Your approach is different, though, in that the, uh, the, the there's no narrator. Well, I, I take it back. There's there's narration. You have introductions. You got maybe twenty some chapters. And each one is introduced in your voice uh, as a narrator. And then you let the people talk. Is that is that a fair description? It's a fair description, but what my job is is to have the things that people say and then with italicized connectors, string those together to tell the reader the story as it's happening. So... The how did you talk about the research for this? How did you find all these quotations to use? Well, I live in New Jersey near Rutgers University and Princeton, mm-hmm. and they have two of the largest libraries in America. So I, I use I was able to take out a lot of books and keep them for a long time because I was a college professor. They let you yes. do that, <laughs> and um, <laughs> so I was able to get a lot of reading done. And uh, from the books that I read, I was able to pick out things, quotes that people said, and then keep voluminous notes. And when I wrote the book, write it so that I got the people and their quotes in the proper parts of my story. And my, my story, you know, is, is just from like the winter of 1860-61 until mm-hmm. the spring. So it was pretty, it was relatively easy to keep those people and their quotes together to help tell that story. You know, it's like person one said this, and in anger, person two responded this way, and then as mm-hmm. an observer, person three talked this way. And it was easier to string them together, actually, than I thought it would be. Well, let me ask about that, because that was something I noticed as I'm reading them, is first you've got a, you have a compact chronological span. You're, you're going from December, roughly in 1860, up to the firing on Fort Sumter, April 1861. Uh, occasionally, you you dip back, you have a, a chapter describing Abraham Lincoln, and so you reach back and you've got descriptions about right. Lincoln from five or 10 or uh, 20 years earlier. So, so it's not all, it's not everything in the book wasn't said during those four months. Uh, but, right, but the events are all, all the events with are. Lincoln in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, that I don't think, I'm sure, readers today don't understand was that when he was in his his earlier years, he made a lot, a lot of severely anti-slavery speeches, mm-hmm. and most people forgot that, and the South did not. 
So when Lincoln got elected in 1860, they they sensed somehow that as president he would try to end slavery, and that's what triggered the Civil War. Well, that let me talk about ask you about that. The there is while this is very much not a classical monograph, it, it's very different structure, different style. But a thesis, to me, did emerge, which is that slavery is by far what is on people's minds. And the quotes that you have really bring that out, that uh, the, the Southern figures you quote, whether they are leaders like Davis or Governor Pickens of, of South Carolina or civilians, wealthy people, ordinary people, uh, whoever you're quoting, they're Slavery is, seems to be the number one thing on their minds. Did, is that it was, the message? It was for yeah. sure. Well, we'll talk about that. That 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 did that emerge from your research, or did you suspect that going in? I sort of felt that way going in. What what interested me was that everybody, no matter how important or powerful they were, mm-hmm. did not think that there would be a civil war to end slavery. That that somehow legislatively or politically, slavery would be ended to the to, to the agreement of both North and South. And when things headed towards the collision at, at Fort Sumter, neither side was ready for it, and certainly neither side could properly handle it. That is another thing that emerges, uh, certainly the, the number of quotes of people who, who are confident this is going to be resolved uh, that, that it's not going to lead to a, a disastrous civil war is it's a little bit unsettling because uh, I certainly don't never once thought in my lifetime we'd ever remotely come close to repeating such a thing. Uh, but it's a little less, one says with a little bit less confidence today, oh, that could never, ever happen again. Um and then to read all these people in 1860 saying, oh, this could never happen, uh, the politicians will work it out, is a little bit uh, – was that in your mind as you were writing it, that, that this is it, a tale for our time? It, it, the structure of the book is such that that was how people felt, that somehow this slavery problem will, will be resolved somehow. And then as the years go by into the late 1850s and 1860 and then 61 – People are suddenly realizing that that that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. That that something something horrific is going to happen here in America because of slavery, and it did. You know, it's, I always I, I remind people mm-hmm. and your listeners too that in the Civil War, six hundred and thirty thousand men died. More people died in that war than in all of our other wars put together. It was horrendous. No, but certainly no doubt whatsoever about that. Uh, so you mentioned structure of the book. I want to ask you about that. That it is, you know, it is unconventional in, in the way it's put together. Um, I'm looking at a, a galley and uh, a, a PDF that was sent to me again from your publicist. I don't. I'm not holding the physical book in my hand, so there's no um, notes section or index at the back. That comes later in the the book production process. Are are there footnotes or endnotes in the final version for yeah, for each there's, quote? There's there's not there, there's there's an index 
mm-hmm. and some endnotes. But there's like a, a chapter where I refer to all the different places where I got the quotes from. Okay. That that um, because again, I mean, you know, as a professionally trained historian, you know how much we rely on reference notes when you're reading. If I'm as I'm reading this book, I'd read a, a quote I didn't recognize, and my first thought is, you know, I could use that in a lecture, uh, but I have to verify it first. And since my on PDF version here does not have footnotes, I would have to track it down online and find it somewhere else. Uh, but a listener or a reader reading this book could find out, say, on page 167, Elizabeth Van Loo said something. If they wanted to know more, there's a source there that's cited at the back of the book? The sources are there, but you'd have to go to the end of the book where there's a, a whole list of the books that I, that I used as references. And you find those people and those quotes in those books, but they're, they're not specific as to chapters and pages. Right. So, something else that, what, when I was when we were talking about Studs Terkel's books, I used the word impressionistic, and that occurred to me as I was reading this for for about two thirds, three quarters of the book. Uh, I got the. I was getting the feeling of what was going on in this time, the the, the uh, a feeling of the emotional temperature of the people from, from the various quotes. But because I recognized a lot of them, I was also aware, oh, that's something that Seward said earlier, didn't say it in 1860-61, or that's something that was said about Lincoln after he died by somebody who knew him earlier. I, I, I recognized a lot of the quotes, and they weren't all from this period, and even the events themselves uh, are, are described fluidly. That is, we learn about uh, what's happening inside Fort Sumter. You, you, you quote Anderson and Doubleday and all these other people there. But we don't hear about the Star of the West until two-thirds of the way through the book. You've already described events that happened after the Star of the West mission right. took place. Um, and then we then we read it. So, in other words, it's not a straight chronological story. You don't tell. The, no, it's the, not. The, and so, how how did you? What was the guiding principle to to organize, if if not going in order? What I wanted to do was to start with Lincoln becomes the president, and right mm-hmm. away he has this dilemma of Fort Sumter, and I thought it was just hilarious that Lincoln could not pronounce Fort Sumter. He kept calling it Fort Sumter, and he mm-hmm. spelled it wrong, too. And it wasn't until, like, several months went by when he correctly could pronounce Fort Sumter, which I found very funny. Interesting. But my, my idea was to start there. The crisis mm-hmm. begins there. Lincoln's the president, and the next day he finds out about this crisis that had been brewing for a long time that, that he did not know about. And then he jumps into it, and calls in his cabinet and gets mm-hmm. his cabinet to, to, to vote on what to do and talk about what to do. So from there, in, in March of, of 1861, the story goes on chronologically, but there's references to the past and what happened at Fort Sumter in Charleston and the people in the Confederacy up to that point. But mm-hmm. I thought that was a, a better way to handle it than starting off like back in the 1850s. Yeah, it, it is. It 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 goes back and forth. I as I was reading it, I got the feeling it, it was almost like reading a screenplay. Um, 
uh, a script for a TV documentary that, that, that you, this voice is talking, then this one, then, then we're here, then we're there. Uh, and it's all telling the same story, but it's not using traditional chronology for its organizing principle. Uh, as I said, it's a unique and, and uh, innovative way to tell this story. Looks like we're I going to take it. It's a simple story. The North <laughs> wins and the hero dies. Well, there we go. That does simplify it. Um, and I think we can safely say uh, folks who are listening to this show, they probably don't need a spoiler alert for that. They, they know what's going to happen here. But, uh, you know, it, it does recreate the, uh, uh, the, the challenge. It does, to a large degree, recreate the atmosphere. Let me ask quickly, the, the, the version I'm looking at, again, which was sent to me some months ago, as a galley, there were a couple things as I was reading it. I thought, oh, if I'm the copy editor here, I would tell the author about this. Uh, there's a couple proper names misspelled that I'm guessing, um, uh, you know, that autocorrect was, was not the friend of the typesetter. Uh, and, and well, they they did. I mean, they got back to me a, a number of times about questions about things in the galleys. So when the book was published, all that was straightened out. Okay, that then then I won't mention any of them here. I will assume that they're all all fixed and fine. Um, it, we didn't miss Lincoln, did we? You got Lincoln right. That was a good one. <laughs> Jefferson Davis is okay. Um, no, the one that I that I thought when I read it, I thought, oh, autocorrect at work was was uh, Mary Boykin Chestnut and her husband James oh, yeah, Chestnut. Yeah. Uh, so I, they're not I was still fascinated by her book. I really yeah. was because it was you know a, a woman in the Civil War, with all this going on around her, mm-hmm. explaining the, the news of the day, so to speak, and then personally, how, this, uh, how she saw this herself and, and how it affected her, because her, her husband was involved with the war. Yeah, it, it, it's a great, she's a great source and a great story. Yeah. We're going to take another short break. We'll come back. We are talking tonight with Bruce Chadwick. He's the author of The Cannon's Roar. And we pull up that cover again. It's so slow. Um, The Cannons Roar, Fort Sumter and the Start of the Civil War, an oral history. That's your subtitle. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Bruce Chadwick. He is the author of The Cannon's Roar, Fort Sumter and the Start of the Civil War, and Oral History. And we've been talking about the, uh, the this unique, uh, uniquely structured book in which you hear the uh, unmediated voices of numerous historical characters uh, presented, stitched together with the author's uh, connective uh, tissue with, with lines explaining who or what is speaking. But uh, but I, I, your, your, your com- comparison to Studs Terkel's work was, was enlightening. It is really similar to that, with the difference that he, he interviewed his people and you found your quotes uh, in, in written sources, since we can't interview anyone from the 1860s. Uh, with one almost exception, uh, and this just jumped out at me, so I have to ask you, three times in the book, uh, the person speaking suddenly is, uh, one was T. Harry Williams, one was Albert Hart, one was Bill Gnapp. Uh, all three are 20th century historians, uh, not not contemporary voices. So these, these three, of all the, the you know, I'm, We've all read lots and lots of secondary sources on this topic, but these three made the cut. They they slipped through past uh, <laughs> uh, past all the contemporary people. How how did they do that? I I think I had one nineteenth century historian, but I'm, but I'm not sure. Otherwise, um, how they made the cut? They, they were just the, the writers of books I consulted to get information from. There wasn't a specific reason why I used any of. Them. So, so they, I mean, they they do stand out because everybody else is, you know, is Mary Boykin Chesnut or Abner Doubleday or some other contemporary figure, and, and suddenly we're reading this. A voice that stood out by not being there. Let me ask you this: um, there were no African American voices quoted here that I could discern. Uh, no, the only guy was there was a guy who was in the fort itself. Mm-hmm. Who was an African American? Um, right. I think he was. I don't think he was a, a soldier. I think he was uh, somebody who just worked there, a maintenance right. guy or something. And he got he got sick and I think he passed out. And that was the only that was the only reference because um, the African American troops had not come into the army yet because the war had not technically started. But I'm, I'm thinking. I mean, when you reach back, for example, to talk about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, uh, and quote somebody who knew him before the war, somebody reminiscing about him afterwards. Um, you know, Frederick Douglass knew Lincoln. There, there would be an, there might have been opportunities to to bring in alternate perspectives. But I'm guessing there are very few black voices from Charleston, South Carolina. Let's say that that, no, that we I have any sources. I don't for. think so. I mean, I mean, slavery was was in full bore then. This is 1861. Right. So no, it wouldn't be. It'd be hard to find find that material. So, as you were writing this, um, again, it's organized into to chapters of varying length, but there there are more than twenty of them, and some you can devour in just a few minutes. Some are, are go on for longer. 
Was was there a favorite chapter uh, to write? Huh, a favorite chapter? Huh. Gee, it's interesting that that you asked that. The, the, the very end of the book, mm-hmm. the very, very end where a woman joyfully celebrates the start of the war, I think she's from the Midwest somewhere, that I enjoyed, and that the chapters on developing Lincoln's character to when he becomes the president. There's a, a quote in there where he, where he says of himself that, that I forget the exact words of the quote, but he said that I never considered myself a president. And you know, as you know, he was elected with only 39% of the vote. Mm-hmm. So his development into a, well, a, a truly great man from a start like that interested me. And I, I like that about Lincoln and, and how he developed the whole Fort Sumter scenario. You know, the, the idea that we can't start the war. We have to. Mm-hmm. If there's going to be a fight, we've got to make them start the fight. Now, I mentioned earlier that, that I recognized a lot of the quotes because a lot of the people you're quoting are, are famous. You know, Seward is famous, Winfield Scott, and so on. Uh, but you have a chapter about the Halsey brothers, uh, yeah, who I'd yeah. never heard of. I'd never. Who? Who? Where did you learn about that? Nobody them? has. Who were they, and, and where they, did you find them? They were them? the subjects of an earlier book that I wrote. Ah. It was called Brother Against Brother, Two Guys in New Jersey, uh, one who was a northern soldier and one who was an aide on Robert E. Lee's staff. And the, the older brother, he was like 20 years older, he married a woman who lived in the Richmond, Virginia area and mm-hmm. became a, a planter and a slave owner and a friend of Robert E. Lee's. Just the opposite of his younger brother, in the North, who was a, you know, a staunch abolitionist. That's why I put them in. I, I personally didn't know any other set of brothers that I could use as an example of that. But that, that did you know, give a human dimension to the, the conflict that's about to break out here. The book, it, it seemed to me in the last third or so, once... Uh, you, Lincoln has made up his mind uh, beginning of April that he is going to send a relief uh, expedition, but only supplies. He's not going to send troops, not going to start a war. Uh, then then the story does become more chronological. Then, then we start to feel a countdown toward the actual, uh, the actual battle. And I, th- I thought that uh, the, the dramatic tension, uh, even though I knew how it's going to end, we all know how it's going to end, uh, I, I thought that that was very effective. That that it brought us uh, right up to the well, moment. Well, the other thing battle. too that I tried to point out in the last third of the book that mm-hmm. both sides, the, the Lincoln administration and uh, the, the Confederacy, screwed up all over the place. Um, misinterpretation of orders, uh, communiques, politicians mm-hmm. jumping in. Uh, governor Pickens was going to the governor of South Carolina. He was all set to attack Fort Sumter himself. And um, things got, got, got mixed. In wars, what's that phrase, the great phrase, the fog of war. Mm-hmm. In the fog of war, people make a lot of mistakes. So let me ask a question about, from the author's perspective, when you were writing this, who did you have in mind as your audience? Huh, my audience, anybody. Anybody and everybody. <laughs> I wasn't aiming at a particular class of people no it was I mean, I, no, go ahead i tried i tried to i tried to make the book 
as as colorful and full of action as I could to mm-hmm. attract a, a younger audience, like teenagers in high school maybe, and parts of it too as a, like a memory thing for, for older readers, remembering mm-hmm. all other books they'd written about Fort Sumter or the Civil War and, and Abraham Lincoln. There wasn't a specific audience in mind, no. Mm-hmm. No, I, I mean, I ask that because it, it is so different from your traditional academic monograph. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the title of Chapter 17. Uh, you have several chapters that describe Charleston with different subheadings. And 17, Charleston, South Carolina, subtitled Sex, Sex, and More Sex in the Old South. Um, <laughs> yeah, they had a lot of sex. That that one leaped off the page, certainly. Uh, it, 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 <laughs> It did suggest you know, we're looking for an audience that will, uh, if you're just standing at the shelves in Barnes and Noble and glancing through a book. No, and, no, no, I that, wasn't. No. Well, well, no, that 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 would attract a reader who otherwise might uh, put it down and pick up a uh, a, a lesser book on the Civil War. <laughs> um, I didn't do it for that purpose. No, I uh-huh. didn't. I did it. Why I did it was, and I. I mean, you're right. I mean, people might mm-hmm. think that, but it just interested me that that Mary Chestnut, mm-hmm. the diarist that I use so often in the book, was so interested in sex. She really was. Yes. She, on the one hand, her husband's going into a civil war, and his, mm-hmm. his life's at risk. On the other hand, she goes to all these parties and meets all these people involved in sex. Yeah, it is. It, she that ties into your theme also of slavery because she she talks about how. Slaveholders, you know, abuse their their enslaved yeah. people, uh, you know, as, for sex uh, on, against their will. It, it really is is it, it brings it back down to a very serious level that this is not just something to laugh well, at. Well, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it is. And I mean, and she she was not that she was one of those people, but I mean, she was a, she and her husband were slaveholders themselves, right? And so she knew what she was talking about. No, she saw the institution from from within as a uh, as a participant. Well, you quote a lot of other famous people. Uh, William Tecumseh Sherman gets uh, a good amount of screen time uh, with his letters to his brother John Sherman. Right. And, and if a question I often ask uh, people on the show, and, and sometimes wait to the end, but I'll ask you right now. Uh, the Civil War talk radio time machine can take you back to 1860, 61 for only 30 minutes. You're guaranteed not to get hurt. You can come back safely. You can only stay 30 minutes <laughs> and you can only visit with one person. Which person would you want to visit? Oh, Lincoln. Ah, I guess that, that's about it. So what is in the context of this story of, of the, the Fort Sumter story, what, what particularly would interest you about seeing Lincoln in that circumstance? Lincoln was a shrewd guy. Mm-hmm. He he really was, and he would he would play people against each other. And um, what's a there's a there's a story about people like him, where mm-hmm. um, I forget it. But anyway, he would go he would interview people from uh, a slave convention in Virginia during this period of time. He would talk to Democrats, he would talk to Republicans, talk to people from different areas of the country, talk to newspaper reporters, 
uh, public people that he met. You know, there's a famous phrase about Lincoln that when he, before he was president back in Illinois, that mm -hmm. when, when Abe crossed the street, it would take him an hour because on the mm -hmm. way he talked to as many people as he could find. <laughs> He was a really interesting guy, and you know he—he, he, I mean, I always liked him because he—he he was a brilliant man mm -hmm. who passed himself off as a country bumpkin. You know, I'm just good old Abe. Mm -hmm. I really don't know what I'm talking about, but here's what I think. And and he he convinced people of that, and many people saw him that way. Were very critical of him for that, like like all his funny stories and humor and jokes and things like that. People, particularly Southerners, said, this man is a clown. Well, he wasn't a clown. He was, he was a wizard. He really was. And I really admire him for that. And, and also, the, uh, his, the way he carried himself through the war, through the entire war, he was a, a president who was a good commander-in-chief. Mm -hmm. Now, Jefferson Davis was a, a, a war hero from not one, but two wars and the president of the Confederacy, and he did a very poor job as a general in charge of the armies of the Confederacy, where Lincoln did a, a, a very good job. That surprised me, too, and I, and I enjoyed that in Lincoln. No, he, he really is a remarkable character in that way, and, and, and you, you give the example in the book of how Secretary of State Seward thinks he's in charge, he's the premier, and others underestimate Lincoln as well, but uh, but ultimately he shows... He does know what he's doing. He is the boss. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Lincoln put him in place. He, he certainly. Do you have any other projects in the hopper? Are you working on something like this for the future? No, not really. I, I would like to write more oral history type books about uh, military events throughout U.S. history, not just the Civil War, but the Revolution and World War One and World War Two. And it's, but you know what the problem is. The problem is you, you want to do a particular thing or person, and you mm -hmm. find out that there's not enough written about that thing or person to do a book. Like, I always wanted to do a book about the Alamo, but there's mm. not enough written about the Alamo to do an oral history. No, I, I can imagine that would be a challenge to, uh, to, to find enough sources to, to, to put together a book like this. And, well, we are just about at the end of our time, so I want to say you know, thank you for joining me on the show tonight it, it is a unique book it is uh if you don't know the story of what happened at fort sumter there's a lot of suspense there and even if you do um it's perhaps not for every civil war talk radio listener uh but it may be for their teenage kids or for your neighbor who's being introduced to the topic uh in any case i'd enjoyed reading it and uh, enjoyed talking with you this evening. Uh, thanks for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.